When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, pod friends, it's me, the living Dave Bledsoe, and we come to the end of Spooktacular 2021. We end this spooky month with a very, very dark and terrifying tale by H.P. Lovecraft. Don't worry, we cleaned up all the really racist parts. It's called The Rats in the Walls, and it's widely considered to be one of Lovecraft's greatest and most terrifying stories. So enjoy this as you head out into the haunts and haints and the evil that is this time of year. On July 16th, 1923, I moved into Exum Priory after the last workman had finished his labors. The restoration had been a stupendous task, for little had remained of the deserted pile but a shell-like ruin. Yet because it had been the seat of my ancestors, I let no expense deter me. The place had not been inhabited since the reign of James I, when a tragedy of intensely hideous, but largely unexplained nature had struck down the master, five of his children and several servants, and driven forth under a cloud of suspicion and terror the third son, my lineal progenitor and the only survivor of the abhorred line. With his sole heir denounced as a murderer, the estate had reverted to the crown, nor had the accused man made any attempt to exculpate himself or regain his property. Shaken by some horror greater than that of conscience or of the law, and expressing only a frantic wish to exclude the ancient edifice from his sight and memory, Walter de la Poor, 11th Baron Exum, had fled to Virginia, and there founded the family which by the next century had become known as Delapore. Exum Priory had remained untenanted, though latter allotted to the estates of the Norris family, which much studied because of its peculiar composite architecture, an architecture involving Gothic towers resting on a Saxon or Romanesque substructure, whose foundation in turn was of a still earlier order or blend of others, Romans or even Druidic or native ceramic, if the solid limestone of the precipice whose brink the priory overlooked a desolate valley three miles to the west of the village of Anchester. Architects and antiquarians loved to examine the strange relic of forgotten century, but the country folk hated it. They hated it hundreds of years before when my ancestors lived there, and they hated it now, with the moss and mold of abandonment on it. I had not been a day in Anchester before I knew I came of an accursed house. And this week workmen have blown up Exum Priory and are busy obliterating the traces of its foundations. The bare statistics my ancestry had always known, together with the fact that my first American forebear had come to the colonies under a strange cloud. Of details, however, I had been kept wholly ignorant through the policy of reticence that always maintained by the Delapours. Unlike our planter neighbors, we seldom boasted of crusader ancestors or medieval or renaissance heroes, nor was any kind of tradition handed down except what may have been recorded in the sealed envelope left before the Civil War 
by every squire to his eldest son for posthumous opening. The glories we cherished were those achieved since the migration, the glories of a proud and honorable and somewhat unreserved and unsocial Virginia line. My son had told me that he was somewhat avoided during his visits because he was a Delapore, and now I found myself subtly ostracized for a like reason until I convinced the peasants how little I knew of my heritage. Even then, they sullenly disliked me, so that I had to collect most of the village traditions through the mediations of the Norris. What the people could not forgive, perhaps, was that I had come to restore a symbol so abhorrent to them. But rationally or not, they viewed Exum Priory as nothing less than a haunt of fiends and werewolves. Piecing together the tales which the Norris collected for me and supplementing them with several accounts of savants, who'd studied the ruins, I deduced that Exum Priory stood upon the site of a prehistoric temple, a druidical or anti-druidical thing which must have been contemporary with Stonehenge. That indescribable rites had been celebrated there, few doubted, and there were unpleasant tales of the transference of these rites into Sibylle worship, which the Romans had introduced. Inscriptions still visible in the subcellar bore such unmistakable letters as Div. Ops, Magna Mat, the sign of Magna Mater, whose dark worship was once vainly forbidden to the Roman citizens. Anchester's had been the camp of the Third Augustan legions, as many remains attest, and it was said that the Temple of Sibylle was a splendid and thronged with worshippers who performed nameless ceremonies at the bidding of a Phrygian priest. Tales added that the fall of the old religion did not end at orgies at the temple, but the priests lived on in the new faith without real change. Likewise was it said that the rites did not vanish with the Roman power, and certain among the Saxons added to what remained of the temple and gave it its essential outline. It subsequently preserved, making it the center of a cult feared through half the heptarchy. Around 1000 AD, the place is mentioned in a chronicle as being a substantial stone priory housing a strange and powerful monastic order, and surrounded by extensive gardens which needed no walls to exclude a frightened populace. It was never destroyed by the Danes, though after the Norman conquest it must have declined tremendously since there was no impediment when Henry III granted the site to my ancestor, Gilbert de la Poore, first baron of Exum, in 1261. Of my family before this date, there was no evil report, but something strange must have happened then. In one chronicle, there's a reference to the Delapore as Cursed of God in 1307. Whilst village legendry had nothing but evil and frantic fear to tell of the castle that went up on the foundations of the temple and priory. The fireside tales were mostly grisly descriptions, all the ghastlier because their frightened reticence and cloudy evasiveness. They represented my ancestors as a race of hereditary daemons, besides whom Gilles de Retz and the Marquis de Sade would seem the various tyros, and hinted whisperingly at their responsibility for the occasional disappearance of villagers throughout several generations. The worst characters, apparently, were the barons and their direct heirs. At least most was whispered of these. If of healthier inclinations, it was said, an heir would early and mysteriously die to make way for a more, more typical scion. 
There seemed to be an inner cult in the family presided over by the head of house and sometimes closed except to a few members. Temperament rather than ancestry was evidently the basis for this cult, for, I, for it was entered by several who married into the family. Lady Margaret Traveller of Cornwall, wife of Godfrey, the second son of the fifth baron, became a favorite bane of children all over the countryside. And the dame and heroine of a particularly horrible old ballad yet, yet extinct of the Welsh border. Preserved and balladly true, though not illustrating the same point, is the hideous tale of Lady Marie de la Poor, who shortly after her marriage to the Earl of Shrewsfield was killed by him and his mother, both of the slayers being absolved and blessed by the priest to whom they confessed what they dared not repeat to the world. These misled ballads, typical as they were of crude superstition, repelled me greatly. Their persistence and their applications to so long a line of my ancestors were especially annoying whilst the imputation of monstrous habits proved unpleasantly reminiscent of one of the known scandals of my immediate forebearers. The case of my cousin, young Randolph Delapore of Carfax, who went among the Negroes and became a voodoo priest after he returned from the Mexican War. I was much less disturbed by the vaguer tales of wails and howlings in the barren, windstruck valleys beneath the limestone cliff, of the graveyard stenches after spring rains, of the floundering, squealing white thing on which Sir John Clave's horse had trod on one night in a lonely field, and of the servant who had gone mad at what he saw on the priory in the full light of day. These things were hackneyed spectral lore, and I was at the time a pronounced skeptic. The accounts of vanished peasants were less to be dismissed, though not especially significant in the view of medieval custom. Prying curiosity meant death. More than one severed head had been publicly shown on the bastions now effaced around Exum Priory. A few of the tales were exceedingly picturesque and made me wish I'd learnt more comparative mythology in my youth. There was, for instance, the belief that a legion of bat-winged devils kept a witch's sabbath each night at the Priory. A legion whose sustenance might explain the disproportionate abundance of corch vegetables harvested in the vast gardens most vivid at all was the dramatic epics of the rats. The scampering army of obscene vermin which had burst forth from the castle three months after the tragedy that doomed it to desertion. The lean, filthy, ravenous army which had swept all before it and devoured foul cats, dogs, hogs, sheep, even two hapless humans before its fury was spent. Around that unforgettable rodent army, a whole separate cycle of myths revolves, for it's scattered among the village's homes and brought curses and horrors in its train. Such was the lore that assailed me as I pushed to completion with an elderly obstinacy the work of restoring my ancestral home. It must not be imagined for a moment that these tales form my principal psychological environment. On the other hand, I was constantly praised and encouraged by Captain Norris and the antiquarians who surrounded and aided me. When the task was done over two years after its commencement, I viewed the great rooms, wainscoted walls, vaulted ceilings, mullioned windows, and broad staircases with the pride of fully compensated by the prodigious expense of the restoration. Every attribute of the Middle Ages was cunningly reproduced, and the new parts blended perfectly with the original walls and foundations. The seat of my father's was complete and I look forward to redeeming the last of the local fame of the line which ended in me. I would reside here permanently and prove that Delapore 
for I'd adopted again the original spelling of my name need not be a fiend. My comfort was perhaps augmented by the fact that although exemplarily was medievally fitted, its interior was in truth wholly new and free from old vermin and old ghost alike. As I have said, I moved in on July 16, 1923. My household consisted of seven servants and nine cats, of which the latter species I am particularly fond. My eldest cat, Blackjack, was seven years old and had come with me from my home in Bolton, Massachusetts. The others I had accumulated whilst living with Captain Norrie's family during the restoration of the Priory. For five days, our routine proceeded with utmost placidity, my times being spent mostly in the codification of old family data. I had now obtained some very circumstantial accounts of the final tragedy in the flight of Walter de la Poor, which I conceived to be the probable contents of a hereditary paper lost in the fire at Carfax. It appeared that my ancestor was accused with much reason of having killed all the other members of the household except for four servant confederates in their sleep. About two weeks after a shocking discovery which changed his whole demeanor, but which, except by implication, he disclosed to no one save perhaps the servants who assisted him and afterward fled beyond reach. This deliberate slaughter, which included father, three brothers, and two sisters, was largely condoned by the villagers and so slackly treated by the law that its perpetrator escaped honored, unharmed, and undisguised to Virginia. The general whispered sentiment being that he had purged the land of an immemorial curse. What discovery had prompted an act so terrible I could scarcely even conjecture. Walter de la Bore must have known for years the sinister tales about his family so that this material could have given him no fresh impulse. Had he then witnessed some appalling ancient rite or stumbled upon some frightful and revealing symbol in the priory or of its vicinity? He was reputed to be a shy and gentle youth in England. In Virginia, he seemed not much so hard and bitter as harassed and apprehensive. He was spoken of in the diary of another gentleman adventurer, Francis Harley of Bellevue, as a man of unexampled justice, honor, and delicacy. On July 22nd occurred the first incidents, which, though lightly dismissed at the time, takes on a preternatural significance in relation to latter events. It was so simple as to be almost negligible. It could not possibly have been noticed under the circumstances, for it must be recalled that, I, that since I was in a building practically fresh and new except for the walls and surrounded by a well-balanced staff of servitors, apprehension would have been absurd despite the locality. What afterward I remembered is merely this, that my old black cat, whose moods I know so well, was undoubtedly alert and anxious to the extent wholly out of keeping with his natural character. He roved from room to room, restless and disturbed, and sniffed constantly about the walls which formed part of the old Gothic structure. I realize how trite this sounds, like the inevitable dog in the ghost story which always growls before his master sees the sheeted figure, yet I cannot consistently suppress it. The following day, a servant complained of a restlessness among the all the cats in the house. He came to me in my study, a lofty west room on the second story with groined arches, black oak paneling, and a triple gothic window overlooking the limestone cliff in Desolate Valley. And even as he spoke, I saw the jetty form of Blackjack creeping along the west wall and scratching at the new panels which overlaid the ancient stone. 
I told the man that there must be some singular odor or emanation from the old stonework, imperceptible to human senses, but affecting the delicate organs of the cats, even through the new woodwork. This I truly believed, and there, when the fellow suggested the presence of mice or rats, I mentioned that there had been no rats there for 300 years, and that even the field mice surrounding the country could hardly be found in these high walls where they had never been known to stray. That afternoon, I called on Captain Norris, and he assured me that it would be quite incredible for field mice to infest the Priory in such a sudden and unprecedented fashion. That night, dispensing as usual with a valet, I retired in the West Tower chamber, which I had chosen as my own. Reached from the study by a stone staircase and short gallery, the former partly ancient, the latter entirely restored. This room was circular, very high, and without wainscoting, being hung with the arrows which I had chosen myself in London. Seeing that Blackjack was with me, I shut the heavy gothic door and retired by the light of electric bulbs, which so cleverly counterfeited candles. Finally switching off the light and sinking on the carved and canopy four-poster bed with a venerable cat in his accustomed place across my feet, I did not draw the curtains. We gazed out at the narrow north window which I faced. There was a suspicion of aurora in the sky, and the delicate traceries of the window were pleasantly silhouetted. At some time I must have fallen quietly asleep, for I recall a distinct sense of leaving strange dreams when the cat started violently from his placid position. I saw him in the faint aurora glow, head strained forward, forefeet on my ankles, and hind feet stretched behind. He was looking intensely at a point on the wall somewhat west of the window, a point which to my eye had nothing to mark it, but toward which all my attention was now oriented. As I watched, I knew that Blackjack was not vainly excited. Whether the arrows actually moved, I cannot say. I think that it did, very slightly. But what I can swear to is that behind it now I heard a low, distinct scurrying of rats or mice. In a moment, the cat had jumped bodily on the screening tapestry, bringing the affected portion to the floor with his weight and exposing a damp ancient stone wall, patched here and there by the restorers and devoid of any trace of rodent prowlers. Blackjack raced up and down the floor by his part of the wall, clawing at the fallen arrows and seemingly trying at times to insert a paw between the wall and the oaken floor. He found nothing, and after a time, returned wearily to his place across my feet. I had not moved, but I did not sleep again that night. In the morning, I questioned all the servants and found that none of them had noticed anything unusual, save that the cook remembered the actions of a cat which had rested on her windowsill. This cat had howled at some unknown hour of the night, awakening the cook in time for her to see him dart purposely out the open door and down the stairs. I drowsed away the noontime, and in the afternoon called again on Captain Norris, who became exceedingly interested in what I told him. The odd incident, so slight yet so curious, appealed to his sense of the picturesque and elicited him from a number of reminiscences of local ghostly lore. We were generally perplexed at the presence of rats, and Norris lent me some traps in Paris Green, which I had the servants place in strategic localities when I returned. I retired early, being very sleepy but harassed by dreams of the most horrible sort. I seemed to be looking down from an immense height upon a twilight grotto 
knee-deep with filth, where a white-bearded dame and swineherd drove a ball about a staff a flock of fungus, flabby beast whose appearance filled me with an unutterable loathing. Then, as the swineherd paused and nodded over his task, a mighty swarm of rats rained down on the stinking abyss and fell to devouring beast and man alike. From this terrible vision, I was abruptly awakened by the emotions of Blackjack, who had been sleeping as usual across my feet. This time, I did not question the source of his snarls and hisses, and of the fear which made him sink his claws into my ankle, unconscious of their effect. For on every side of the chamber, the walls were alive and nauseous with sound. The verminous slithering of ravenous, gigantic rats. There was now no aura to shew the state of the Rayaras, the fallen section of which had been replaced. But I was not too frightened to switch on the lights. As the bulbs leapt into radiance, I saw a hideous shaking all over the tapestry, causing the somewhat peculiar designs to execute a singular dance of death. This motion disappeared almost at once, and the sound with it. Springing out of bed, I poked at the arras with a long handle of a warming pan that rested near, and lifted one section to see what lay beneath. It was nothing but the patched stone wall. Even the cat had lost his tense realization of abnormal presences. When I examined the circular trap that had been placed in my room, I found all the openings sprung, though no trace remained of what had been caught and had escaped. Further sleep was out of the question, so lighting a candle, I opened the door and went out of the gallery toward the stairs to my study, Blackjack following at my heels. Before we had reached the stone steps, however, the cat darted ahead of me and vanished down the ancient flight. As I descended the stairs myself, I suddenly became aware of the sounds in the great room below. Sounds of a nature that could not be mistaken. The oak panel walls were alive with rats, scampering and milling, and while Black Jack was racing around with the fury of a baffled hunter. Reaching at the bottom, I switched on the light, which did not this time cause the noise to subside. The rats continued their riots, stampeding with such force and distinctness that I could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures, in numbers apparently inexhaustible, were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some depth conceivably or inconceivably below. Now I heard steps in the corridor, and in another moment, two servants pushed open the massive door. They were searching the house for some unknown source of disturbance, which had thrown all the cats into a snarling panic and caused them to plunge precipitously down several flights of stairs and squat yowling before the closed door to the sub-cellar. I asked him if they had heard the rats, but they replied in the negative, and when I turned to call their attention to the sounds in the panels, I realized that the noise had ceased. With the two men... I went down to the door of the subcellars, but found the cats already dispersed. Later, I resolved to explore the crypt below, but for present, I merely made a round of the traps. All were sprung, yet all were tenantless. Satisfying myself that no one had heard the rats save the felines and me, I sat in the study till morning, thinking profoundly and recalling every scrap of legend I had unearthed considering the building I inhabited. I slept some of the forenoon, leaning back in one comfortable library chair to which my medieval plan of furnishing could not banish. Later, I telephoned Captain Norris, who came over and helped me explore the subcellar. Absolutely nothing was found, although we could not repress a thrill at the knowledge that this vault was built by Roman hands. 
Every low arch and massive pillar was Roman. Not the debased Romanesque of the bungling Saxons, but the severe and harmonious classicism of the age of Caesars. Indeed, the walls abounded with inscriptions familiar to the antiquarians who had repeatedly explored the place. Things like Begete Prop Temp Dona and El Preic Vies Pontifiatis. The reference to Attis made me shiver, for I had read Catalyst and knew something of the hideous rites of the Eastern God, whose worship was so mixed with that of Sibylle. Norris and I, by the light of the lanterns, tried to interpret the odd and nearly effaced designs on certain irregular rectangular blocks of stone generally held to be altars. I couldn't make nothing of them. Remember that one pattern, a sort of raid sun, was held by students to imply a non-Roman origin, suggesting that these altars had merely been adopted by the Roman priests for some older and perhaps aboriginal temple on the same site. And one of these blocks were some brown stains which made me wonder. The largest in the center of the room had certain features on the upper surface which indicated its connection with fire. Probably burnt offerings. Such were the signs in the crypt before whose doors the cats had howled, where Norris and I now determined to pass the night. Couches were brought down by the servants, who were told not to mind any nocturnal actions of the cats, and Blackjack was admitted as much for help as companionship. We decided to creep the great oak door, a modern replica with its slits for ventilation tightly closed, and with this attended to, we retired with lanterns still burning to await whatever might occur. The vault was very deep in the foundations of the priory, and undoubtedly far down on the face of the beetling limestone cliff overlooking the waste valley. That it had been the goal of scuffling and unexplainable rats, I could not doubt, though why, I could not tell. As we lay there expectantly, I found my vigil occasionally mixed with the half-formed dreams from which the uneasy motions of the cat across my feet would rouse me. These dreams were not wholesome, but horribly like the one I had had the night before. I saw again the twilight grotto and the swine herd with his unmentionable fungus beef wallowing in filth, and as I looked at these things, they seemed nearer and more distinct so distinct that I could almost observe their features. Then I did observe the flabby features of one of them and awakened with such a scream that Black Jack started up while Captain Norris, who had not slept, laughed considerably. Norris might have laughed more, or perhaps less, had he known what it was that made me scream. But I did not remember myself until later. Ultimate horror often paralyzes memory in a merciful way. Norris waked me when the phenomena began. Out of the same frightful dream I was called by his gentle shaking and his urgent to listen to the cats. Indeed, there was much to listen to, for beyond the closed door at the head of the stone steps was a veritable nightmare feline yelling and clawing, whilst Blackjack, unminded of his kindred outside, was running excitedly around the bare stone walls in which I heard the same babble of scurrying rats that had troubled me the night before. An acute terror now rose within me, for here were anomalies which nothing normal could well explain. These rats if not the creatures of a madness which I shared with the cats alone, must be burrowing and sliding in the Roman walls I had thought to be of solid limestone blocks. 
Unless perhaps the action of water through more than 17 centuries had eaten winding tunnels which Rodenbottles had worn clear and ample. But even so, the spectral horror was no less, for if these were living vermin, why did not Norris hear their disgusting commotion? Why did he urge me to watch Blackjack and listen to the cats outside? Why did he guess wildly and vaguely at what could have aroused them? By the time I had managed to tell him as rashly as I could what I thought I was hearing, my ears gave me the slight last fading impression of scurrying, which had retreated still downward far underneath this deepest of subcellars till it seemed as if the whole cliff below were riddled with questing rats. Norris was not as skeptical as I had anticipated, but instead seemed profoundly moved. He motioned me to notice that the cats at the door had ceased their clamors as if giving up rats for lost while Blackjack had, bur had a burst of renewed restlessness and was clawing frantically around the bottom of the large stone altar in the center of the room, which was nearer Norris's couch than mine. My fear of the unknown, which at this point was very great. Something astounding had occurred, and I saw that Captain Norris, a younger, stouter, and presumably more naturally materialistic man, was affected fully as much as myself. Perhaps because of his lifelong and intimate familiarity with local legend, we could for the moment do nothing but watch at the old black cat as he pawed with decreasing fervor at the base of the altar, occasionally looking up and mewing at me in that persuasive manner which he used when he wished me to perform some favor for him. Norris now took a lantern close to the altar and examined the place where Blackjack was pawing, silently kneeling and scraping away the lichen of centuries which joined the massive pre-Loman rock to the tessellated floor. He did not find anything and was about to abandon his effort when I noticed a trivial circumstance which made me shudder, even though it implied nothing more than I had already imagined. I told him of it, and we both looked at its almost imperceptible manifestation with the fixedness of fascinated discovery and acknowledgement. It was only this, that the flame of the lantern set down near the altar was slightly, but certainly flickering from a draught of air which it had not before received, which came indubitably from the crevice between the floor and the altar, where Norris was scraping away the lichens. We spent the rest of the night in a brilliantly lighted study, nervously discussing what we should do next. The discovery of that some vault deeper than the deepest known masonry of the Romans underlay this accursed pile? Some vaults unsuspected by the curious antiquarians of three centuries would have so been sufficient to excite us without any background of the sinister. As it was, the fascination became twofold and we paused in doubt whether to abandon our search and quit the Priory forever in superstitious caution, or to gratify our sense of adventure and brave whatever horrors might await us in the unknown depths. By morning we had compromised and decided to go to London to gather a group of archaeologists and scientific men fit to cope with the mystery. It should be mentioned that before leaving the subcellar, we had vainly tried to move the central altar which we now recognized as a gate to a new pit of nameless fear. What secret would open the gate wiser men than we would have to find? During many days in London, Captain Norris and I presented our facts, conjectures, and legendary anecdotes to five eminent authorities. All men who could be trusted respecting to family disclosures with future explorations might develop. We found most of them little disposed to scoff, but instead intensely interested and sincerely sympathetic. 
It's hardly necessary to name them all, but I may say that they included Sir William Brinton, whose excavations in Trude excited most of the world in their day. As we took the train for Anchester, I felt myself poised on the brink of frightful revelations, a sensation symbolized by the air of mourning among the many Americans at the unexpected death of the president on the other side of the world. On the evening of August 7th, we reached Exum Priory, where the servants assured me that nothing unusual had occurred. The cats, even old Blackjack, had been perfectly placid. Not a trap in the house had been sprung. We were to begin exploring the following day, awaiting which I assigned a well-equipped rooms to all of my guests. I myself retired to my own tower or chamber with Blackjack across my feet. Sleep came quickly. But hideous dreams assailed me. There was a vision of a Roman feast, like that of Trilamaco, with a horror in the covered platter. Then came that damnable recurrent thing about the swineherd and his filthy drove in the twilight grotto. Yet when I awoke, it was full daylight with the normal sounds of the house below. The rats, living or spectral, had not troubled me, and Blackjack was quietly asleep. On going down, I found that the same tranquility pervaded elsewhere, a condition which one of the assembled savants, a fellow by the name of Thornton, devoted to the psychic, rather absurdly laid on the fact that I had now been shown the thing which certain forces had wished to show me. All was now ready, and at 11 a.m., our entire group of seven men bearing a powerful electric searchlights and implements of excavation went down to the sub-cellar and bolted the door behind us. Blackjack was with us, for investigators found no occasion to despise, to despise his excitability, and were indeed anxious that he be present in case of obscure rodent manifestations. We noted the Roman inscriptions and the unknown altar designs only briefly, for three of the savants had already seen them and all knew their characteristics. Prime attention was paid to the momentous central altar, and within an hour Sir William Britton had caused it to tilt backward balanced by some unknown species of counterweight. There now lay revealed such a horror as would have overwhelmed us had we not been prepared. Through a nearly square opening in the tiled floor, sprawling on a flight of stone steps so prodigiously worn that it was little more than an inclined plane at the center, was a ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Those which retained their co-location of skeletons showed attitudes of panic, fear, and all over were marks of rodent gnawing. The skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy, cretinism, or primitive semi-apedom. Above the hellishly littered steps arched a descending passage seemingly chiseled from the solid rock and conducted a current of air. The current was not a sudden unnoxious rush as from a closed vault, but a cool breeze with something of freshness in it. We did not pause long, but shiveringly began to clear a passage down the steps. It was then that Sir William, having examined the hewn walls, made an odd observation that the passage, according to the direction of the strokes, must have been chiseled from beneath. I must be very deliberate now and choose my words. After plowing down a few steps amidst the gnawed bones, we saw that there was light ahead. 
not any mystic phosphorescence, but a filtered daylight which could not come except from unknown fissures in the cliff that overlooked the waste valley. That such fissures escaped notice from the outside was hardly remarkable, for not only is the valley wholly uninhabited, uninhabited, but the cliff is so high and beetling that only an aeronaut could study its face in detail. A few steps more and our breaths were literally snatched from us by what we saw, so literally that Thornton, the psychic investigator, actually fainted in the arms of the dazed man who stood behind him. Norris, his plump face utterly white and flabby, simply cried out inarticulately, whilst I think that what I did was to gasp or hiss and cover my eyes. The man behind me, the only one of the party older and I, croaked the hackneyed, my God, in the most cracked voice I had ever heard. Of the seven cultivated men, only Sir William Britton retained his composure, a thing more to his credit because he led the party and must have seen the sight first. It was a twilight grotto of enormous height, stretching away further than any eye could see, a subterraneous world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestions. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance, I saw a weird pattern of tumuli, a savage circle of monoliths, a low-domed Roman ruin, a sprawling Saxon pile, and an early English edifice of wood. But all of these were dwarfed by the ghoulish spectacle presented by the general surface of the grounds. For yards about the steps, extended an insane tangle of human bones, or at least bones at least as human as those on the steps. Like a foamy sea, they stretched, some fallen apart, but others wholly or partly articulated as skeletons. These latter invariably impostures of demonic frenzy, either fighting off some minutes or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. When Dr. Trask, the anthropologist, stooped to classify the skulls, he found a degraded mixture which utterly baffled him. They were mostly lower than the Piltdown Man in the scale of evolution, but in every case, definitely human. Many were of higher grade, and a few were skulls of supremely and sensitively developed types. All the bones were gnawed mostly by rats, but somewhat by others of the half-human drove. Mixed with them were many tiny bones of rats, fallen members of the lethal army which closed the ancient epics. I wonder that any man among us lived and kept his sanity through the hideous day of discovery. Not Hoffman, not Hoysmans, could conceive a scene more wildly incredible, more frenetically repellent, or more gothically grotesque than the twilight grotto through which we seven staggered, each stumbling on revelation, after revelation and trying to keep for the nonce from thinking of the events that must have taken place here 300 years or a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years ago. It was the antechamber of hell and poor Thornton fainted again when Trask told him that some of the skeleton things must have descended as quadrupeds through the last twenty or more generations. Horror, piled on horror, as we began to interpret the architectural remains. 
The quadruped things with their occasional recruits from the biped class had been kept in stone pins out of which they must have broken in their last delirium of hunger or rat fear. There had been a great herd of them evidently fattened on the coarse vegetables whose remains could be found as a sort of poisonous and sillage at the bottom of huge stone bins older than Rome. I knew now why my ancestors had such extensive gardens. Would to heaven I could forget the purpose of the herds I did not have to ask. Sir William, standing with a searchlight in the Roman ruin, translated aloud the most shocking ritual I have ever known and told of the diet of an antediluvian cult which the priest of Sibylle found and mingled with their own. Norris, used as he was to the trenches, could not walk straight when he came out of the English building. It was a butcher shop and kitchen. He read to familiar English graffiti there, some as recent as 1610. I could not go in that building, that building whose daemon activities were stopped only by the dagger of my ancestor Walter de la Poor. What I did venture to enter was the low Saxon building, whose oaken door had fallen, and there I found a terrible row of tin stone cells with rusty bars. Three had tenants, all skeletons of high grade, and on one bony forefinger of the one I found a seal ring with my own coat of arms. Sir William found a vault with far older cells beneath the Roman chapel, but these cells were empty, and below them was a low crypt with formerly arranged bones, some of them bearing parallel inscriptions carved in Latin, Greek, and the tongue of Phrygia. Meanwhile, Dr. Trask had opened one of the prehistoric tumuli and brought to light skulls which were slightly more human than a gorilla's and which bore indescribable ideographic carvings. Through all this horror, my cat stalked unperturbed. Once, I saw him monstrously perched atop a mountain of bones and wondered at the secrets that might lie behind his yellow eyes. Having grasped to some slight degree the frightful revelations of this twilight area, an area so hideously foreshadowed by my recurrent dream, we turned to that apparently boundless depth of midnight cavern where no ray of light from the cliff could penetrate. We shall never know what slight Stygian worlds yawned beyond the little distance we went, for it was decided that such secrets are not for the good of mankind. But there was plenty to engross us close at hand, for we had not gone far before the searchlight showed that accursed infinity of pits in which rats had feasted and had sudden lack of replenishment had driven them for avenous, a rodent army, first to turn on the living herds of starving things and then burst forth from the priory in that historic orgy of devastation which the peasants will never forget. God, those black pits of sawed, picked bones and open skulls, those nightmare chasms choked with picanthropoid bones, Celtic, Roman, English bones of countless unhallowed centuries. Some of them were full and none can say how deep they had once been. Others were still bottomless to our searchlights and peopled by the unnameable fancies. What, I thought, of the hapless rats 
that stumbled into such traps amidst the blackness of their quest in this grisly Tartarus. Once my foot slipped near a horribly yawning brink and I had a moment of ecstatic fear, I must have been musing for a long time for I could not see any of the party but the plump Captain Norris. Then there came a sound from that inky, boundless, farther distance that I thought I knew. And I saw my old black cat dart past me like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown. I was not far behind, for there was no doubt after another second it was the eldritch scurrying of those fiend-born rats, always questing for new horrors and determined to lead me on even to the grinning caverns of the earth center where Nair Lahotep, the fat, faceless god, howls blindly to the piping of two amorphous idiot flute players. My searchlight expired, but still I ran. I heard voices, yowls, and echoes, but above all there gently rose that impious insidious scurrying gently rising rising as a stiff bloated corpse gently rises above an oily river that flows under the endless onyx bridges to a black putrid sea something bumped into me something soft and plump it must have been the rats the vicious gelatinous ravenous army that feast upon the dead and the living why shouldn't the rats eat Adela poor as Adela poor eats forbidden things? The war ate my boy. Damn them all. The Yanks ate Carfax with flames. Burnt Grand Desire Adela poor and the secret. No. No, I tell you. I am not that demon swine heard in the Twilight Grotto. I was not Edward Norris's fat face on the flabby fungus things. Who says I am Adela poor? He lived, but my boy died. Shall a Norris hold the hands of Adela poor? It's voodoo, I tell you. And that spotted snake, curse you, Thornton. I'll teach you to faint and what the family to do. Splod, you stinker. I'll learn you how to gust. Wool and snake in thy waist. Magnamator, magnamator, artistia madanon. Agbunak atasakond agas. Lata ungo karachia. That is what they say I said when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up Exum Priory, taken my blackjack away from me and shut me into this barred room at Hanwell with fearful whispers about my heredity and experiences. Thornton is in the next room, but they prevent me from talking to him. They are trying, too, to suppress most of the facts concerning the Priory. When I speak of the poor Norris, they accuse me of a hideous thing, but they must know that I did not do it. They must know it was the rats the slithering, scurrying rats whose scampering will never let me sleep, the demon rats that race behind the padding in this room and beckon me down to greater horrors than I have ever known. The rats. The rats they can never hear. The rats. The rats in the walls. 
Happy Halloween, pod friends. We'll be running a bit of a best of next week. But don't worry. We'll be back in November with lighter fare. Until then, sleep well and pay attention to your cats.